Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drugs, where we explore why, how, and what design and designers are going forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers, innovative creators on the planet, inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential. In this episode, I chat with Elizabeth Churchill, who I met in 2018 at UX Istanbul, where both of us were speakers at the conference. Elizabeth works at Google and has an outstanding experience leading user research and UX research for design and developer tools and systems like Flutter, Material Design, and the most recent Google operating system called Future. During the episode, we talk about how to do user research for these fields and what she has learned in terms of how much psychology background is actually important if you do user research, especially as a designer. And we talk about the future of AI and what this actually means for design. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here with Elizabeth Churchill. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to talk to you. So we're going to talk a lot about material design, your time at Google, the research for design systems and developer tools. So I'm really excited about that. But I think for the people who don't know you, it would be really great if you could just give them some more context about your journey, how you got into UX, user research, and how you ended up now at Google. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was a psychologist originally. And I've always been fascinated by people and their behaviors and the tools that they use. So how can we give people better tools so that they can get their jobs done, they can learn more easily? Um, so I've always been fascinated by human problem solving and learning. And over the years, I slowly sort of moved into human factors and design. So the big picture of design, not just flat screens, but the really how people use tools and technologies every day, as well as use the interfaces. And so I've been working in industry for over 20 years. I moved to the States in 1997 from the UK, leaving academia to come into industry and have worked on ubiquitous computing, embedded systems, computing you know, in the world, as well as particular applications. And I've been at Google six and a half, coming up for seven years and have always worked on infrastructure projects. So how do we bring great research and design to designers and developers and help them make great experiences for their end users. And that's where I am. I came to Google and said, oh, I'm going to be at Google just a year or so. I just want to sort of work on this project. And it's just been a wonderful journey and more and more great projects. And so here I am, still at Google. Yeah, really great. And I think you have been doing a lot of different things at Google, right? I think what you have done when you were just starting was quite different to what you were doing right now, right? Can you talk a little bit about like the different topics that you had the chance to work on? Mm -hmm, for sure. So I started off working on an infrastructure middleware for Internet of Things developers. And again, looking at developers, but we were looking at people who did embed, who were building embedded systems and who were doing distributed systems for devices that were talking to each other, Internet of Things. And that project sort of morphed into me starting research for material design, which is Google's design system that was launched in 2014 and is used by about 95% of the Google products use at least some part of material design. And at the time that I started research there, there hadn't been any formal research on the design system itself, the components, the documentation, etc. So I spent several years building a qualitative and quantitative research team for material design, and that has gone on to grow. And I have recently turned my attention more to looking at research for Fuchsia, which is an open source operating system that launched recently. And in that context, 
I'm looking very much at um, developers, all the way from the bottom of the stack, the kernel, all the way up to UI frameworks, and thinking about what tooling they need in order to be very effective. Again, to build consumer products. So I'm not connected into the consumer product space. I help the developers and designers have great tools so that they can use the operating system to, to great, give great you know, consumer experiences in the future. Um, I also manage research for Flutter, which is a UI framework, which you can go and look up if you like, because it's uh, getting more and more popular. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to dig a little bit into what it means to you know, do user research for Flutter and all of these great tools from uh, Google in a little bit. But I think before we do that, I think I would be super curious to hear your opinion about like one topic that I think has been discussed a lot with uh, within the design community. I mean, your background, you have a very academic and proper research in psychology, in human behavior and uh, scientific background, right? Can do user research specifically also with that perspective. Very often though, if you work on a very small project or a small startup, sometimes that the UX designer himself or herself has to do the, you know, the user research part for that project. So maybe doesn't have that scientific or uh, psychology background. How do you see that? And you think how much psychology background is important for a designer if he has to do a job of a user researcher? How do you generally see that relationship? I think it's a very tricky one. I'm pleased you're asking this question because I think there are lots of resources available out in the world for people to be able to carry out tests and so forth. What I have found historically, though, is that with a really good training, background and training, people ask the right questions because the techniques of doing studies are easy to pick up, but the sensibility of knowing what the right question is to ask is often the thing that you have to train people to do. So problem framing is the hard problem. <laughs> That's the difficult thing, which I think a really good training will give you in UX or psychology or behavioral sciences. But Techniques themselves are pretty easy to pick up and they're very, very, you know, well-resourced out in the world. You can watch videos, you can read the books. There's a lot of amazing books out there. But the problem framing part is what you get when you have a real great training, HCI, um, psychology, etc. So my advice really would be, even if you don't have the resources to, you know, hire somebody full time, think about really getting some experience or getting some expertise on, on the side of asking what are the right questions. Now, very tactical questions like, can somebody find this feature, discoverability, et cetera? Those are, you know, I think, you know, smart people from all disciplines can do that kind of thinking. But the real, what value does this have? Where does it fit into someone's life? Why are they using it? Will they continue to use it? Those kinds of questions, I think the problem framing for those and which are the really important problems to follow and to, to go after. I think having a bit of training or somebody with training and background in the behavioral sciences would be helpful, even if as an advisor, not necessarily someone who's executing the research. Got it. And if you would unpack this a little bit, the framing aspect and the problem solving aspect, right? So how does your user research approach usually looks like, right? Let's say you have a task of a new, let's say, product or a new aspect you need to research on. How do you usually kind of approach that and kind of plan that out? And what are the, the different things that you would need to do in order to do a proper framing and to kickstart that whole effort? Well, I think it sort of depends. So I sort of broadly describe research in sort of three different ways. 
<clears throat> there's foundational research. And foundational research, you might actually use ethnographic techniques, more anthropological techniques, where you're going and seeing how somebody exists in the world. You know, how do these devices fit into their lives? And you start to look not just about the people who are using the devices, but also the people who are not using the devices or the features or the apps or whatever. And you start to think about how do we understand the weaving of technology into everyday lives and the ways that technology shape us and we shape technology. And that means that we're looking over time from something coming into your life to becoming indispensable or abandoned because you just don't really use it. So you start to try and do, try and do really foundational work. And then you have sort of the iterative work, which I think most folks in design are more familiar with, iterative and evaluative. Evaluative would be things like findability, discoverability. Can people find this feature? Can they use this feature? Is this workflow, which might be quite short, in a sort of small getting a goal accomplished, is this something that they're able to do without errors, without having to go back, without frustration? Because we want to bring emotion into this as well. And then the iterative, so if that's evaluative and it's very bounded as a project, you might do classic techniques, you know, like um, have people just try it out in front of you and do a think aloud as they're going through. You might have them do tasks and take time. How long does it take? Do they have to backtrack? Do they seem frustrated? And then you might do some qualitative retrospective on how they felt about it. So those are sort of fairly bounded. And then the iterative, I think, is where it becomes really important for disciplines to work together very well and cross-functional partnerships. Because say you've got a product, say an app, and you're launching some new aspect of it, or it's a new app altogether for a very specific task. You really want to be looking at the business value, working with the PMs, the product managers, really working with engineering to understand why things are the way they are and how that feature app function will, will function in a set of uh, tasks. So say, you know, what you're trying to do is a payment app, a new payment app. The foundational is going to give you who is going to use this and why would they use it? What market are you going after? Is this a market that's used a payments app before, you know, of some kind? You know, is this, you know, a, a new market? It, are you going after a different demographic from before? You know, why are you doing it? What's your value add? And the foundational research will really help you there. Then say you've got some prototype or a beta out there and you've got some, you know, people who are your early testers. You really want to get the, the iteration around whether they can, whether it's usable, just basic usability, but also whether it's useful, which goes back to the foundational work and you're iterating. And then you want to see if it's, for example, accessible because you want to get as many people in. And by accessibility, I mean everything from people who are differently abled, you know, with maybe sort of visual differences to accessible in terms of have you got the language right? Have you got the right language on the, on the, the buttons? Do people know what they're looking at? Do, is it obvious what the flow is? Or do you want some kind of, you know, entry wizard or documentation? And then you've got the very specific evaluative, which is does this feature work? Is this particular button visible to people who have colorblindness? You know, so you can see that the scoping of each of these different approaches goes from large to a small scope. 
but they're all critically important. So the particular techniques that are used and the problem framing is whether you're looking at this as a foundational project to see whether you're bringing something of value and to whom, all the way through to are you putting the right features together for the right flows and that you have the right documentation labeling, all the way through to a specific feature. And you might at that point also look at things like latency. You know, is it the case that somebody clicks on something and then your system, this is where your engineering comes in, things are too slow and you know they're frustrated and they will abandon and they will go away. Is there something that you can do while they're waiting for something to crunch, like the classical beach ball, you know, or the timer that goes around? So the techniques vary depending on what the question is, but the problem framing should always sit from the smallest, most tactical evaluative, I believe, into the bigger foundational. And I think a lot of apps have fallen by the wayside because they've lost sight of the big vision of why they're there, and they end up just iterating on specific features, which may not be the high value features. The other thing to note is that when you've got a flow, if you do a redesign that makes something salient that wasn't salient before, it could be through color, through size of a feature, or where it sits in the flow, you can actually completely change your performance indicators. Because say, for example, you know, you're on a flight booking site, and the most salient button, because of color or positioning visually, is the button that says bookmark, not purchase. But you're really trying to get people to purchase, but that button isn't very salient. You're going to get a lot of people bookmarking because human problem solving and visual salience will drive the eyes and the action and the call to action in a particular way. I'm sure most people who are listening to this are familiar with that, but it's really important to know what the patterns are and how you're using them and how in a long critical user journey or a long workflow, you're gonna be directing people to different things and different actions. And that requires you knowing over time, not just how people think, but also what the value is that you're bringing. And I'm sure a lot of folks you know, listening to this are aware of that, but it's so often that you can end up with the exigencies of your day-to-day busy lives and a quarterly accounting budget, whatever it is, not thinking in the longer term. And I think that's where the problem framing really comes in. And as you spend time in the field, you get more of that experience to be able to do that. And to work with PMs and to work with engineering and to work with marketing, to know how to give the cadence over time of where you're directing individual users, but all of your user base in, you know, strategically. Yeah, totally makes sense. There are different zoom levels. Like you say, you can have the more foundational one, which looks at the very big picture. You can basically talk about things like, you know, button sizes, et cetera. So I think that's very important. And then obviously the problem framing really depends on that. I had a couple of questions coming to my mind, but I would uh, like to talk at one specifically. If you look at the more foundational one, I always think that's a one a very difficult one sometimes. But if you if you are in a in a very early stage of a new product or feature that you're trying to to work with, specifically if you look at a whole product that just uh, exists of different features, right? And to really understand if how much value it provides, is this the right feature stacking? Like how much value does it provide for people in the long run? Do people actually gonna use it? Or just telling you in the user research session that they would love to use it, but then they don't pick it up because I think there's also a gap between seeing the value in something on an 
interview, but in the actual the adoption, maybe in uh, in the actual workflow and in the actual life that you happen to be in. And uh, because there's friction to open something, to to start an application, to pull something out of your pocket, right? So yeah. at the same time, this is so important if you want to uh, just connect it to product innovation to understand if what you are kind of creating actually provides value. Is there any kind of trick or kind of aspect that you have learned in the past when it comes to that foundational research and to really evaluate if people are actually going to use your product in the way that you think and you know, f- to validate things like feature stacking. Because I think there's a difference between a user research session and seeing actually people kind of using a, maybe a beta uh, and uh, adopting that. I think having a, a beta out there is really important and having people actually use something in their daily lives, it's really important. And again, back to the, get the users that you're expecting will want to use your app or whatever, and then get people doing diary studies who may not have actually thought that they would have, you you wouldn't have thought of them. So really try to do a really good sampling, but do diary studies over time. And there are lots of apps um, where, you know, diary studies, Paco is one app that was built by somebody in my team at Google, and it's out in the world. And it's a great little diary tool that just pops up and asks you what you're doing based on certain triggers, which could be time of day, opening the app you know, using particular features and so forth. So I really believe in those. And I think those kinds of studies reveal so much data about people and about their behaviors that you can go back and mine that data over and over again to check your assumptions. We also do a lot of assumptions workshops where we get engineering, PM, design, research, and ask what what are the assumptions you have about the person such that they are going to use this feature of yours what are you assuming we could say that a lot of technologies that are built make the assumption that you know people have a certain kind of income level early iot devices in the home made the assumption that people had a certain technological know-how to set up some devices that are sort of speaking voice devices in the home early versions kind of assumed that it was a single person using. And then, of course, the communal home started to become something that everyone researched because whose voice is it? What access controls are they? So doing assumptions workshops is a really good idea to unpack what assumptions you have. You just said something great, which is like, yeah, I can't be bothered to take it out of my pocket and open it, right? You know, make us have a look at the assumptions you have about how friction in the world exists. Do you remember there's all those conversations around phones getting bigger and women's clothing not having pockets big enough to put the phones in? But, oh, but all women have bags, don't they? Well, it's an assumption, do they? I don't know. Why do women's clothes not have enough pockets? You know, do we assume that the pockets are the same sizes, you know, as on men's clothes? So these are all assumptions about use and practice in the everyday sense of how a technology fits into a life. So... I would also have always have things out in the world being used. The other set of assumptions are around performance indicators. There are many ways in which an off-the-shelf daily active use or monthly active use as a performance indicator may not be the right one. So if you have a technology that is actually in a sort of safety-critical system and it's about writing something, you know, in the case of an emergency. Monthly and daily active use is exactly the wrong thing to want to have. It's critical incident offset. 
And you might only want to use that one thing one time, you know, in you know, its entire lifetime of this system, because it's actually about ensuring safety. And so the other thing that foundational research, which looks at the daily practices of why certain things exist, you can actually start to have really great conversations about what is a performance indicator. So um, this comes to dashboard design, which some folks on my team have been doing recently, which is, you know, an initial prototype of a dashboard, which was looking at a number of devices that were out in the field in a trial. The first thing was daily and monthly active use. Well, that was actually about the people, and it was just imported from another set of assumptions. But actually, what we really wanted to do was monitor the devices, because we were looking to see whether the devices were performing well enough in the field. And so what you really wanted was number of devices up, number of devices down, number of devices rebooting. But we just imported daily and monthly active use as a sort of dashboard design because we were thinking about the end user consumer and whether they were using it or not. But actually, the real question was, are the devices working effectively or not? Because they're beta test testings. <laughs> and so that kind of thinking where the design team is working closely with the research team, is working closely with the PM team and the eng team to understand what the different values are and great communication is really important because not everybody in a giant team may understand what the key indicators are. And if you all start to work together with the problem framing and working with the problem framing together, you can often shift what the KPIs are and come up with ones that are meaningful for the phase of the product, as well as what the product is supposed to support. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of my recent guests on the podcast, uh, Matt Wallard, who wrote a book called Start at the End, he actually talked about something similar. He talked about having a behavior vision board within the team, basically, and agree early on what is the actual core behavior we actually want to track or reach with our whatever we are working on, product, project or whatever. And uh, by having that common understanding and transparency for everyone really helps to align on, yeah, really nail it down on like the KPI performance indicator that you're trying to look at and try to measure from there. Yeah, yeah super interesting. I mean, another aspect is, you already touched on that, is to bring in different people and different perspectives in user research session. And oftentimes, I think there's a kind of misconception When it comes to diversity of user groups you're trying to research with or sort of uh, diverse perspectives you're trying to incorporate when it comes to product feedback, very often I believe it's not so much, it's not only about making a product more accessible, but oftentimes it's also about innovation because I feel like when you have people, different circumstances using your product, you come across use cases that you haven't thought about and actually can be very often beneficial for a lot of users. Because very often in our daily life, we always, the reality of life is there and, you know, you can just use one hand to do something or you're doing something parallel to another action. So I think very often these are revealing opportunities for innovation, specifically on a legacy product. Any kind of learning from that end? Yeah, well, I just want to just agree with you very much. And I think there's, even the word user is problematic. So I would like what, you know, somebody recently said to me, that sounds like a paradigm shift. I'm not sure if that's true. I would like us to stop saying user and start saying use because we're looking at the behavior we want to support and we have use cases. So we're shifting in that direction. So the thing with the word user to, you know, what you're alluding to is that it makes an assumption about a demographic or an ability or a situational ability that 
may well not hold. The other thing about that notion of the user is it assumes that there are people at the margins who we don't have to go and look at who are not the user because they don't fit the demographic, because there's a sort of normative notion of what the user is. Whereas if we think of use, we start to think about the human body in action, as you say, I've only got one hand, you know, it's use. What are the cases, the situations, the contexts in which this might be used? So I'm very much in agreement with you around that. So in our work, we try to ask who, what are the assumptions? Who are we not expecting? Who are we not including? What are the situational contexts that we are not thinking about? You know, I would like the story of uh, the Sony Walkman. Do you remember those classical Walkmans? <clears throat> the original use case was that it had two um, entry points for the headphones because the original use case was that people would want to listen together in public spaces. And actually, they've discovered very quickly that it, it was the soundtrack to your own personal life that people really wanted, not listening to music without you know, <clears throat> audio pollution as a couple. The telephone, the original use of the telephone was really as an in-home radio, and then it became about people communicating to each other. You know, the telephone was sort of invented to give radio information to farmers in rural places. And it turned out that the people started wanting to talk to each other. And so actually communicating was the thing. So if we look at the history, the discipline of science and technology studies has many such examples where something was invented for one reason, got appropriated, and actually a whole new use started to emerge. So just coming in with that idea, I think is a really important one. How many apps and businesses have we seen pivot where they would, for example, oh, we were just doing payments in order to get from A to B. And it turned out that payments was the thing that we were really good at and there was a gap in the market. So having that kind of mindset, I think is really important. It's hard to do when you have, you know, an established kind of product that needs to pivot. But when, because then you have to worry about the use cases that you're currently supporting that might have to go away if you pivot into a new market. But especially at the beginning, of something we were talking about startups earlier. This kind of critical thinking and nimbleness, I think is really important to have. Um, another area that I've been reading a lot in recently is an area called critical disability studies. And this is an academic area of engagement where scholars who may not all agree with each other on the approach, but they are critically engaging with the concept of what is disability and what is ability. And one of the really interesting things that comes out of that is that you start to look at the way in which from policies, governmental policies to informal policies, you see the way the world is constructed with a set of assumptions about who is going to do what, when, and how. And you start to say, oh, this application sits within this world that has all of these assumptions and these policies and regulations built in. Why do they exist? What are we transforming, resisting, and back to your word, innovating here? Are we just innovating a singular moment of experience? Or actually, are we starting a chain reaction to innovate across a whole industry? You and I have chatted before about AI and the concept of AI, which I think of, you know, it's not a monolith, it's a set of techniques. We're starting to see examples which are critical interventions around where AI techniques of a particular set of kinds, we can look at all of the different ones, work in certain contexts, but at a certain cost. You know, thinking about a lot of the stuff that's come out recently around the visual aspects of AI, the, you know, where, you know, people's 
faces are not being recognized at all. If you're a person of color, you know, the camera doesn't see you or recognize you as a person. We're starting to see those kind of critical lenses. If we can start to do, you know, speculative design practices, future thinking design practices around those assumptions of what does this technology leave out? What does it bring in? What does it valorize or elevate? And what does it hide? What are the potentials there? I think we, as a field, are moving more and more into those critical reflective practices, which have been very present within the design disciplines and the educational world and academia. We are seeing more and more of that. And, and also, you know, really future thinking agencies. And we're seeing more and more of that, I think, in the daily practice of UX teams and bringing those different perspectives. And I'm really excited, very excited about that. There's an exercise that I've had folks do, which is called the, you know, the many hats. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's six hats exercise. And I love to get people sitting around and having a designer play role being an engineer, a PM play role being, you know, an interaction designer. And they take the roles of the others as they're starting to think about this product evolution or, you know, mapping, because that also reveals another set of assumptions, which is how does a great designer think about what a low-level engineer does and what they need to do? How does an engineer think about what an interaction designer thinks and needs to know? So you get these different, you know, epistemological ways of thinking, and you get people to go into each other's shoes and tell each other what they think they're, how they're constructing the behavior of the person who will use this thing and why it matters. And those make for really interesting conversations because we also then get cross-disciplinary unpacking of words that are the same words, but which actually mean different things, but you think you're saying the same thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> those are really fun exercises. Yeah, absolutely. Th that sounds like a really fun exercise. I actually heard, heard about it, never tried it myself, but uh, totally makes sense because, I mean, what you also create is empathy within the team, besides a really fun session, but you also create empathy also within the team, like how you argument um, certain topics and yeah i mean specifically as a pm it's, you have always you have a lot of interest that you always need to balance so that also comes into play a little bit yeah i actually ran one of those exercises as a workshop with a couple of colleagues at a conference and one of my favorite ones was where we were we were looking at sustainable energy and we had one person who was an ethicist another person who was taking the role of you know climate change another person who was taking the role of legal, another person who was taking the role of business and marketing for this particular company, that this mythical company. And to your point, we had the person who was the business development person working with the marketing person, but trying to do like which market. And that they were all about the bottom line. So they were all talking about the bottom line and the ethicist and the climate change person were talking about the long term. And so here we had this sort of, You know, this long time horizon of climate change, although it feels like it's coming closer and closer, I don't think it's as long as we think it is, with a quarterly accounting, you know, conversation. And it was just these sort of different, you know, I guess someone like Stuart Brand would call them pace layers, things that move at different paces and in different time frames. And it was one of the most interesting workshops I've run because people got really passionate and they were role-playing. They were stepping in to role-play these roles and trying to, to your point, balance between you know, short-term viability and long-term 
sustainability for a planet. It was a really interesting exercise. And, you know, I think we see a lot of, like I say, the exigencies of the daily life, people making choices based on very kind of narrow scope of reasoning by necessity, because that's the job of the role and their function. And so one of the questions we've had, you know, in my team a bit over the years is, and my various teams, is that what happens when you feel that you're under pressure to produce something, but you believe that actually it's, you know, in the long run, not going to be the best for people. And how do you manage that in your career? Because we, you know, need to work and get money and pay bills and so forth. So those sorts of tensions, I think, especially for people in design disciplines, arise a lot because you're often at the, you're right at the front of building for people and creating an experience such that it is acceptable, usable, accessible and desirable for people. And so I think these questions come up for all disciplines, but I feel, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel that within research and design, it comes up more for people. So, you know, coaching folks through careers around how to navigate those kinds of questions and how to speak up has been something that's been very important to me. No, absolutely. And you know, I think by such exercises, I think you also show or make transparent, I think, where are the problems with kind of the different interests of each person, right? And like uh, how you can navigate that and yeah, how it can be also, you know, hard sometimes for another stakeholder to agree on something because they have different KPIs, <laughs> different focus areas. And uh, specifically, I think with the example that um, you just gave around the, the climate topic, I think it also shows where the core problem is in order to solve a problem, right? Uh, if you have like a very long interest and then the, the short bottom line. I would love to talk to you uh, also about uh, design tools and some of the work that you have done uh, on Flatter, Fuchsia, uh, Material Design. And you've been quite involved there when it comes to user research. Um, but before we dive more into the specifics, I would be super interested. How do you think user, a, re, a user research process between like a classical consumer product, let's say, and such developer or designer tools is kind of different? Or what are specifics to working on such design systems, because that's or like developer systems, basically, when it comes to user research? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think that we have a lot of really great, well-honed techniques and patterns for discretionary consumer app use. And so there's a lot of patterns and material design definitely was around mobile discretionary consumer um, primarily. And so what that means is that when you start to go to something like enterprise, right? So when you're starting to build tools for an enterprise, for example, like cloud services or something, or, you know, whatever, what you've got there is people, it's not discretionary, people are doing this for their jobs. Typically, it's a lot more expertise needed in order to, you know, really work the tools. And what that means is that, you know, information density matters because somebody's trying to solve a problem that might be quite complex and work on it. And they need the right, in, back to human computer interactions sort of great mantra, the right information in the right place at the right time in the right format. And I think with discretionary consumer, we've seen a lot of patterns where people are used to using certain flows. When it comes to, for example, enterprise, you know, one of the things that we discovered in material was, oh, the patterns might be different from the ones from discretionary user. Information density is the perfect example. You know, if you're an expert, I remember, I'll give you an example. 
I remember, you know, my bank, I remember logging on to my bank and I just love spreadsheets. And they had moved from the spreadsheet, like really kind of dense information in a spreadsheet to much more what I would call like, you know, sort of like the lots of open white space, big bubbles, you know, quick, quick glance. And I think the quick glance was good for a lot of people. But for me, I was sort of managing various accounts and I just wanted a quick at a glance, a lot of information to do some comparisons. And I was just really expert at doing that. I wasn't just checking my bank balance, you know. And so, you know, the, the enterprise space, it's sort of in the middle between that and I think sort of developer tools and design tools. Because once you move into that space, you have people who deep experts doing very complex problem solving. And they also want information at a glance, but the information density and the way in which the information comes up and the length of the task. Again, it's not a quick pop in, check my bank balance, pop out. It's like I'm popping in to actually have a look and to do some cross, you know, checking across a bunch of things, which is really easy on a sort of spreadsheet model, but hard if I'm scrolling a bunch of bubbles and closing and opening things for different accounts. So firstly, I think there's level of expertise, there's complexity of task. And, I, and the other thing is that the population to test can quite often be smaller. So, you know, if you've got millions and millions and millions of users doing the same task, that's pretty short workflow flow, you know, through I'm checking my bank account on my app and I'm done. That's a lot of data telling you how things are going. And it's a fairly uniform flow. When you've got some experts working in a very particular area in the developer community, they may have very different ways of getting to the same. They may have different flows to get to essentially what looks like the same end, but they're not. They're creating, they're making, they're doing something. There's a lot of variance. There's variance in the cognitive style. There's variance in the development style, or the tools might be used the same, you know, may be the same. Um, recruiting participants can be really hard because you just have a much smaller pool of people <laughs> to come to your studies and to work with your designs. So, you know, those are some of the challenges. I also think that, you know, if we give designers and developers really great tools, so for example, you know, error messages that are using color and indentation so that there's at a glance problem solving, then the designers and developers can focus on the creative thing of producing for people and not spend a lot of time wrangling their tools. The other thing that comes up a lot in the sort of tooling space is integration across different tools, because typically you're going to use a lot of different tools to actually be creative and produce something in the end. And so the integration between those things has to be very good. When we did some foundational work with designers and looked at their flows, it was incredible how they would use one tool to sort of do a mock-up, then there would be another tool to get some assets, like maybe some icons or whatever. Then everything would be sort of stored in a drive. And then you'd have to have this sort of like organizing the folders. And then somebody would want to stuff that into another tool. And then you hand it over to engineering and then engineering comes back because you've designed something that isn't quite what, how, how they can implement it on the stack that they're on. And then you look and you say, oh, that's not quite what I wanted. That's not, the animation doesn't flow right. And so across all of these different tools, and more and more recently, we've seen tools that do a really good job of essentially a one-stop shop that designers and developers can use, where the assets and the mock-ups and so forth live in a single place. And that's been a really amazing development. I would say in the last five years, people have really focused on creating great tools so that you can actually have that flow, not be constantly 
kind of obstructed or full of friction by moving from here to this tool and then storing something here and someone else picks it up. And I'm sure you've seen those sorts of flows before where it's very frictionful. But in the last few years, we've seen some fantastic tooling coming out and also some consistency across different design teams because the tools are so good that the same tools are being used. And those sorts of things are the foundations to great interdisciplinary and cross-functional collaboration because you don't have different formats. You know, I remember a long, long, long time ago wrangling with Photoshop and then you're handing things over to people who don't use Photoshop. And they're like, well, what is this thing called a layer? And you're like, mm, okay, I'm going to have to go back to basics here. Oh, all right. So the way I've created this, it, basically all of the layers have been kind of completely smushed in your application. <laughs> and I actually need you to be able to unpeel them. I'm sure you've had experiences like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Also experiences that you were pointing out when it comes to just like, I mean, like you said, the last five years have been quite incredible. If you think about what happens in terms of innovation on tools, real-time collaboration, integration of tools, I think the whole software community tried to really create APIs and, and opportunities to connect apps and um, you know, we even have just like creative tools that integrate video chat and, and audio um, collaboration. And it's, it's really incredible, I think, what happened in the last years. And also to the, the workflow aspect where more and more parts of the workflow is integrated into one tool that can integrate a couple of other tools. And I think one of the challenges that you also have pointed out is that obviously, uh, while there is a lot of innovation, it's also a hard space to innovate because very often these users, they have specific workflows they're used to. And specifically, we have a legacy product. You know, if you take Photoshop as an example, maybe uh, it's hard to reinvent uh, the wheel without, uh, you know, putting off the your core user base basically, because they're used to certain things and you don't want to change that because even though it looks like a very unusable product, people are used to it and everyone has their flow. And if you start to change that, the speed is kind of lost for them. So super interesting. And how would I have another question on the aspect of design systems? I think one specific thing when you do, I assume user research when it comes to design systems, like material design and Flutter and so many others that you, when you do testing there, you have the wireframe and UX aspect. How do you shape components and like how do these things actually work in terms of the usability, usability maybe of the product? And then you have the UI layer as well. For example, if you look at Material U, for example, recently, I mean, all that kind of visual flexibility that you have nowadays when it comes to uh, applications and systems. But how do you? Any kind of learnings and how do you divide UX and UI in terms of like a user research section? Because you can do a great user research on a UX, but then if you don't look at the UI at all, it, or if the UI changes the UX completely, that can become challenging. Any kind of learnings in the collaboration with UX or user research, the UX wireframe, the conceptual part, and then the UI piece and how to integrate the UI piece without putting too much constraints basically on the visual design level at the same time? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And the way that we set it up in material design, and I think that's evolving now, is that we had all different kinds of experimentation. And so there's the, the specifics of the visuals, which you know they've inherited a lot of learnings from the past. 
But then one of the ways that we looked at how that would sit into any kind of like experience is do experiments at scale. So come up with mock-ups using the new visual designs and use something like Amazon Mechanical Turk to get, you know, hundreds and thousands of people to go through certain flows using the new components, the new visual layouts and so forth, and to do tasks. And back to the early thing I said, to look at, you know, how long it took them, to look at where they clicked. So it's almost like not quite eye gaze, but, you know, where the pointer is, where you're actually, where the tap is, you know, and to look at whether they actually managed to tap within the space that we wanted them to. So the findability, can they find the call to action? Do they understand what the buttons are and how they're designed in this particular flow? Do they manage to, you know, sort of scan around and get their tasks done quickly? So these are the kinds of things where you can actually do experiments at big scale to try and get, um, you know, a sense of how these visual elements are going to fit together in a flow. Um, we did a bunch of that kind of work with brand as well to see how brands were showing up with different color palettes and so forth. So I think experimentation at scale is one. We also do, uh, well, we used to do lab tests. Now we do video lab tests where we show people, but getting people to do the flows and then going back and talking to the designers. A particular interesting spot is back to AI where, you know, the design work and the visual design work and the representational work where you have an AI system that's working in the background and learning as it goes forward so the end user experience changes over time. That is a particularly interesting space to actually look at, you know, what kinds of tests and experiments you can give to see. Because the, the visual elements are changing over time as a result of the person's actions and interactions. So I think there's a huge paradigm shift there in how we're going to do that UX, UI, visual design, interaction design, and goal accomplishment design. Um, I think that's a really interesting space of emerging design practice. So what have I learned? I've learned that there are many ways to do evaluation, but it's really important to do it. And I think it's we're going to go into a much more complex way, ways of having to address this coming forward, as well as ways of thinking about how visual design morphs through experience. If you've got an AI system in the background changing, for example, layout, for example, salience and so forth. No, absolutely. I think that's really an exciting, I think, upcoming space. Talking a little bit about AI, I think one of the tricky things with that potentially and you but you tell me with the user research when it comes to AI prototypes sometimes it's the question do you do it with data or you do it without data so do you actually have a coded AI that's in the background and actually does something to evaluate maybe a concept or can you do some low fidelity prototyping maybe to test what an AI would potentially do without all the AI capacities, without doing all the, the heavy engineering work. And is there any kind of learnings when, when it comes to that in terms of like, you know, doing user research for concepts in AI and how much you need to go into the, the actual technical concepts in order to validate this properly? Well, I think it, it depends on the specific complexity of the system. So something that's pretty simple, you know, collaborative filtering is an AI technique if you want. And that's what personalization is all about, you know, what ads you get shown or what you get recommended. I mean, I think there you can do a low fidelity prototype by showing people like the kinds of things that you could expect your system to be doing. Right. 
So the notion of low fidelity changes. And so by creating a data set of possible things that would be recommended, say visual images, and then kludging it, just doing a, a pretend system, you know, which will show the kinds of dynamics of experience difference, that is doable. Once you start to get to like, you know, a really complex, very big AI system that has multiple different things going on, I think that's harder. And so trying things in the field is really important. But, you know, if you think about what is it you're testing, you're testing, you know, the visual elements, you're testing whether somebody can, you know, do something, then you're testing the experience aesthetically that they have. And then you might be testing the satisfaction of the experience. So, for example, might, you know, if you've got something that's doing filtering for you and adapting to you on the content that is shown to you, and you've started off looking at shoes, and then you have a cohort, like a, a, a set of photographs that you're presenting, and you show shoes, and then you show more shoes or different kinds of shoes, and then suddenly you start throwing, I don't know, cars and see, you know, what are, what are the sort of distances that you can go to stretch someone's interest? You could actually have like stories in a newsfeed where you're making recommendations on the basis of one thing and then see how far semantically you have jumped before people just like abandon. I think you can do that kind of thing by just, I'm sort of making this up right now, but, you know, in terms of having basically, you know, a set of things in your toolbox and then just kludge the experience. So it's back to that old technique, which, you know, this is the sort of like automated version of the Wizard of Oz. So, you know, we used to study really complex systems using Wizard of Oz techniques. And you can sort of Wizard of Oz by having recommendations where you're like, okay, semantically, this thing is labeled very far from this thing. So just present this one and then this one and see what the user does. Or you can have a person in the background. We've done a bunch of our studies where we had things <laughs> which were supposed to be really advanced, it was a navigation thing that we were looking at, really advanced navigation tool. But basically that advanced navigation tool was somebody sitting in the back of the car, <laughs> feeding things in, <laughs> Wizard of Ozing it, you know. So yeah, simulate AI with human intelligence. <laughs> Makes sense, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you really need to validate how can you prototype it, right? How can you make it up for that situation to get the feedback you're looking for? When it comes to AI, we were chatting earlier uh, another day. You were also talking a lot about the aspect of augmentation rather than replacement when it comes to AI. And, you know, how, you know, you can use that, for example, to steer behavior and knowledge for users. Do you have any learnings when it comes to how to design slash research frameworks and, you know, principle when, principles when it comes to AI so they are beneficial for the human well-being or for the, for the, for the human in general in comparison uh, maybe to nudges that could maybe lead also to negative outcomes, right? Depending on how you use AI, right? And uh, where they maybe are more steered towards business obje objectives potentially, right? So any kind of learnings in terms of user research in, in that regard when it comes to AI? Well, I think rather than research, I think going back to what we talked about earlier, which is that critical problem framing and the assumptions investigation, I think that's research. That is where I would start. Because, you know, we start to, and, and in that instance, I think the really big move that has come about, which I really like, is, you know, there's a history of participatory designing. There was a Scandinavian sort of movement, 70s, 80s onward, which is really bringing communities in to do co-design. I think there's a new movement now, which is 
better in lots of ways, which is actually supporting communities doing the research themselves and, and not having researchers come in and tell you how to do it, but coming in and saying, you know, here's some ways in which to think about it. So community-based research, I think, is really important in this area. So again, back to thinking about not just AI, but any technology that is assumed to be of benefit, you know, to a particular community. A really good way of looking at that is to have that community take on the ideas and think through them. A classic, very, very embodied AI area for that is um, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, because a lot of self-driving cars, the assumptions were that we have roads that are straight and people cross the road in certain places and so forth. But if you've ever driven in Cairo, or, you know, in many parts of India, you will know, or actually many parts of many places, but, you know, you will know that a lot of those assumptions just don't hold. Um, another great, you know, so getting the community to look at what does an autonomous vehicle, which is a deeply embodied, multiply AI system, how will it behave in your world? Actually, there's a lot of research that showed that the assumptions around driving didn't hold in parts of the Netherlands because, so many people were on bikes and bicycling and the bike is dominant in, you know, places like Amsterdam and then you've got trams and so forth. Another great example is I mentioned navigation earlier. Things like maps, mapping applications. There are a lot of assumptions and a lot of data and a lot of, you know, AI techniques going into making our maps very useful for us. And yet, if you have a place where I was reading some research recently where public transportation is dominant and people bus drivers don't stop at bus stops necessarily they'll just like drop you off at your house because it's that's the culture now my buses don't exactly run on time but they do show up and they're very frequent but you can't quite tell when a lot of our assumptions about what goes into a mapping application and navigation application just don't hold and so in those sorts of instances giving the community the, the ways to be able to investigate whether something fits and whether the changes that occur when those things fit are what they want is probably a really way, good way forward. I mean, navigation in the city of San Francisco, where I live, I remember when the mapping application started optimizing for the amount of traffic by sending people through very nice leafy neighborhoods because the, the main thoroughfares were jammed. And the nice leafy neighborhoods, people who were from out of town didn't know that those were the shortcuts. You know, the people who lived in those nice leafy neighborhoods were not very pleased about that, really. <laughs> so what we did was augment, you know, human navigation skills through places where people literally lived wanting it to be a quiet place. So we detracted from their experience. And, you know, there were concerns about children who used to play on the streets and so forth. So there's always these knock-on effects, you know, these ripple effects. And I think having communities who are impacted use the technologies and give you and work in the assumptions workshops is a way forward potentially yeah i totally agree i mean you know having that participation from people and communities i really love what you were saying about like how can you foster community to adapt tools and principles as a way uh, forward to you know create guidelines and then share learnings etc i think it's a very powerful way Specifically when it comes to AI. I think we're just getting started, but unfortunately, I think we are out of time. <laughs> yeah, I think there are, there are a couple of other topics I would have loved to uh, chat with you here uh, on the podcast. Uh, but I think we need to stop the recording. I would really like to thank you 
for sharing all your insights with us here on the podcast. And thank you so much for that. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. And maybe we can continue the conversation another time. But I feel very honored to be asked. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast.